our text today, we go back to Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed by the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will, this, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically circumcised but keeps the law, but he who is, there's so many circumcisions here. <laughs> Let's start with 30, verse 27. I think that's where I lost my way. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Whew, made it. So as we've been talking the last several weeks, almost this past month, about this right life, today we talk about the right heart. And it's very possible that some people in this room may need a heart transplant, a different type of heart, for God to remove a heart of stone from you and put in a heart of flesh, a heart that is soft, a heart that is loving, is loving the right things. Sometimes in this world we work so hard to put on the right face, the right front, so that everything on the outside to the outside world looks good and, and right, right? Social media just kind of boosts this by allowing us to show the world and choose what we show the world, and, and we often just show, show the best parts of who we are and portray ourselves as good as we possibly can. Yet God, today in our text, we learn from Paul that God is far less concerned with what we look like on the outside and far more concerned with what we look like on the inside, the condition of our heart that He is so passionate about, that God is after our hearts so that He can awaken them to His power. And with our hearts awakened to the power of life in Christ, we have this ability to love Him now in a fresh way and to love one another in a fresh and new way. There's a gentleman, his name was Edward Butler Lytton. He long time ago was the Secretary of State for the colonies of the United Kingdom, and he said this, a good heart is better than all the heads in the world. A good heart is better than all the heads in the world. 
This week, as we're thinking about the, the heart issues of life and where our hearts are, I, I did some reflecting and some personal time thinking about that and, and what I like my life to look like on the outside versus what's on the inside. Uh, a previous season in ministry, about 15 years ago, I was working so hard to show you what I look like on the outside as being good. Because, you see, on the outside, I, w I look pretty good, but on the inside, in a private life and secret sins were, were accumulating and building up. And, and I felt so much guilt and shame because of that. And, and in order to offset that, I, I had this huge fear of being rejected. And so I would put on the outside this incredible front that looked great that would keep anybody from wanting to reject me, or at least that was my plan and that was my goal. I was a successful pastor. I had all my ducks in a row. Shoot, I even had other people's ducks in my row. But my heart was a different matter. Right, this false front. I could even go so far as to say that I was worshiping a fake version of myself that was faker than any idol that mankind has ever dreamed up. And I was going through the, the motions of my faith but they were heartless actions. I was trying to show myself as keeping God's law, but inside I knew that I was just like Paul when he called himself the chief of sinners. And I felt so fake, but my Facebook page made me look amazing. But even today, if I'm totally honest, I'm tempted to put things in place of God. I've, there's things in my life that I love sometimes more than I love God. Now, here is by no means a comprehensive list, but it's fairly exhaustive for today's purposes. Things that I love sometimes more than God. My vocation as a husband, sometimes I love more than God. My vocation as a parent, sometimes I love more than God. My status as senior pastor at St. Luke's Lutheran Church and School, sometimes I love more than God. My own preaching, how other people think of me as a friend or as a pastor, the well-being of the staff of St. Luke's, my finances, the fact that my Mustang's faster than Pastor Arp's Mustang, <laughs> although he would be quick to tell me it's not the car, it's the driver, the success of goods and grace, the well-being of St. Luke's Lutheran Church and School. Right now, these are all good things to love, right? But it becomes wrong when I start to love those things more than I love God. When God comes out of place number one and something else invades into that. Can you relate to any of that? What's the condition of your heart this morning? Do you live the social media life where online everything looks amazing, but at home things are a different story? Or maybe, maybe your life is pretty good shape, but it's easy to look at somebody else's life and judge them. See, we love to use the law as a measuring stick, right? Only we use it wrong. And here's what I mean by that, is we love to compare ourselves with the law to use that as a measuring stick with one another. That compared to somebody else, I'm actually doing pretty good. In standardized tests, we have those percentiles, which I love percentiles, right? I love percentiles because they're all about comparing yourself to somebody else, right? If you get a 90% on a test, it just means you got most of it right. But if you're in the 90th percentile, you are better than 90% of people. That's awesome. 
right? And, and I think that, that myself, as I look at myself and as I look at many of you, I'd say we've got a lot of 90 percentile type of people here. I mean, we don't go out and commit felonies every day. We don't, we don't, we don't do any number of heinous things that any number of people constantly do. We're probably in the 90th percent, with, with the exception of some of you, obviously. You know who you are. But that's the wrong use of the law when we use the law to compare ourselves to each other. Because what we're supposed to do is use the law to compare ourselves to God's standard. And there's a chasm between us and our ability to keep that standard. And, and while, yeah, there may be some significant differences between me or you or you and your neighbor into how, how good or, or bad we are and what kind of percentile, but God doesn't work in percentiles. God says if you're guilty of breaking the smallest minute part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. So whether you're this good or this good, you're still a chasm away from the goodness that God has for you. So all of us are guilty and fallen short of the glory of God. See, the law can never be our means of earning God's favor. And so we dig ourselves into an even deeper hole, and Paul's words today are mostly law, and they stung a lot as I spent time with him this week. Now, the reality is, is all of us are guilty of breaking God's law, and in verse 23, Paul just kind of digs at that, and he says, you who boast in the law, dishonor God every time you break it. And Paul's words that were written primarily to Jews who are in this new church following Jesus, Paul's words to them in that time are every bit as important for us to hear in our time today. See, the point that Paul is getting at, that a true Jew who is writing to then, to us, a true Christian we can read, is one whose heart's been awakened to the power of life in Christ. And this is how you know your heart is awakened. You, you know God's will and you approve of it. You are instructed by God's law and his gospel. You are somebody who leads the blind, those who are in darkness, the foolish and the children. And these are all good things. And Paul is setting us as listeners up to go, ah, we've got it. Only then to just pull the rug out from under us to show that we really don't. And he asks the question, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You know, do you cheat on your taxes? Do you cheat on time that you spend at work messing around or spending time on social media or just wasting time in general that you should be devoting to your work? And at the heart, this is an issue of contentment. That are you content with what God has given you or not? And you see, sometimes stealing has nothing to do with taking something that's not yours. Sometimes stealing is not giving away something that God has given to you in order to be sacrificially generous to somebody else. Well, if stealing isn't your thing, then maybe idolatry or adultery are. He continues, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Or you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And these issues are both heart issues of faithfulness. And adultery isn't necessarily even a full-blown-out affair because Jesus teaches in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that anybody who looks at anybody else with lustful intent is guilty of committing adultery. That's that whole, if you're guilty of breaking just the smallest piece of it, you're guilty of breaking all of it. 
Then he moves on to idolatry, and idolatry and adultery are so close together, not just because they rhyme, but because they have to do with the condition of your heart. Because idolatry is really adultery against God. That your love is given to something else besides him. And these are so closely connected, and I think that's why Paul picks this sex and, and, and love and relationships and idolatry, and he, he pulls these together because these are really the big ones that our hearts as humanity go running after, that we long for, that we want, and oftentimes what we love more than we love God. And so he picks these out because they're core to our humanity, our broken humanity. And he helps us see that we have all fallen short, that we all have this incredible deep need, this incredible deep need. And Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament digs at this even further, and he says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And all of us are sin sick because we've put our love, our highest place of love, someplace that it doesn't belong. We as humans love to worship creation more than the creator. And Paul in this text, unlike some of the other texts that we've talked about this past month, in this text, Paul is not talking about what it is that we do or don't do. Paul is talking about the condition of our heart and what is it that we love. Where and what do our hearts treasure? and value, and yearn for. And see, God knows. This isn't one of those things that you can kind of wiggle out of. God knows the condition of your heart. You can tell me one thing. God knows the truth. He knows that we do not all the time fear, love, and trust in Him above all things. He knows. There's no wiggling around this one. And see, we, we have no room to judge anybody because there's enough sin in our own lives that needs to be judged, that needs to be seen and rooted out and cleaned out and replaced with grace. We have this need to be saved. We have a need for our rescuer. And Jesus' fulfillment of the law, keeping the law perfectly, that means he never once made a mistake, never once sinned, even the slightest amount. He kept God's law perfectly and was righteous. And as he forgives us, he gives us also his righteousness and lays it over top of us. That when the heavenly father looks at you, he doesn't see any of the good things you've done. He doesn't see any of the bad things you've done. He sees only the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, washing over you. That's what he sees. Psalm 51, verse 10, one of my favorite psalms. It's going to be familiar to you, I'm sure. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let me translate that for where we are today. God, my heart is sick and broken, and I need a heart transplant. I don't even need you to fix mine. I need you to take mine out of my chest and replace it with a new heart. Ezekiel writes this. This is God's promise. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And Jesus, speaking in those 
wonderful, beautiful Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. And if you've received a heart transplant from God, you have a pure heart. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, part of the amazing aspect of the gospel is that God loves you and me more than anything else. Think of all the beautiful things of creation, some of the uh, beautiful, majestic landscapes that you've seen in your mind and your experiences, the beauty, the majesty, the glory. God loves you more than all of those things put together. And you and your, in, in, your, in your sinful self, you know the mistakes you've made, you know the brokenness, the places you've gone you never should have been, the places you should have gone that you never entered into. And God says, I don't remember any of those things because I've washed them clean. They don't exist. You are perfect and holy every bit the part that I want you to be. You're my son, you're my daughter, and I love you more than anything else. This is the, the desire that God has to give us a heart transplant. So how do we sign up for this heart transplant? It starts with prayer, right? And, and this is, these are words from Gandhi, not Christian, obviously, but somebody who knew a great deal about prayer. And Gandhi says this, prayer is not asking. It is a longing of the soul. It is daily admission of one's weakness. And I love this part. He says, it is better in prayer to have a heart without words than words without heart. Don't give God lip service. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, don't just recite it. Pray it. When you speak the words of the creed, the Apostles' Creed later today, don't just ramble them on. Believe it. God knows. Let your worship come from your gut, from your heart, from the core of who you are. We're just supposed to dig into God's Word to be saturated and soaked by the Holy Spirit. That we're, we're hearing God's Word, remembering His promises, and allowing the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does miraculously, working and growing faith in us as we receive that Word. And above all, to fall in love with God, to fall in love with the works and words of Jesus to let God be your number one love and to never depart from that and to dig into this, not because you're commanded to, but because you yearn to, you long to, you hunger to. And God in this process, He is the only one who does this, but He renews within us a clean heart and He scours clean our souls. And with a heart that loves God, we receive a heart transplant. Think about it this way, right? In your own circulatory system, the heart is what pumps the blood to every extremity in your body, carrying along that very precious thing called oxygen, giving you fuel and energy for your life, empowering you to have life. Well, it's the same kind of thing. When you receive a heart transplant from God, your bodies and your souls are oxygenated by the Holy Spirit 
and our veins are coursing with the blood of Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to receive his body and his blood. And as we do, Jesus' own blood will flow through your veins and bring you the power of his life. That's what it means to have a heart transplant, to have a heart after God. So how does that then impact our our daily lives, not just give us a hope and a glimpse for the future and salvation that we have for eternity, but how does it impact us here and now today? See, Jesus' great love for us has power to bring changes through having a heart transplant. We're transformed into lives of renewal and freedom. And we're reminded in all of this that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Let me put that into different words. God desires your heart, not your actions. You see, the beautiful thing is that when you have a heart that is in love with God, your actions are going to show it. You can't help it. When your heart is sold out in love for God, your lifestyle will naturally show it. Now, the opposite is sometimes true, right? You can go through the motions and not have any heart behind it, but it shows. Right? Have you ever had someone do something nice for you, but you could tell that they could care less whether or not they did that nice thing for you? And you're like, well, that, that meant absolutely nothing. Thank you, but no thank you. And then you contrast that with somebody who does something genuinely beautiful and kind and loving for you out of a love for you. You can tell. It's different. And Paul is so incredibly in love with Jesus Christ that he wants you to be so incredibly in love with Jesus Christ that your lifestyle just looks like you are in love with Jesus Christ. You're a believer who maybe encounters a lot of dangers and difficulties in this life, but you don't grumble or complain or commiserate over it. You receive those and you rejoice like Paul rejoices in his sufferings. And and your lifestyle, your love for Jesus shines out of those struggles in how you approach life with joy and gratitude and life. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He longs for your heart, not your actions, because he knows that when he captures your heart, the actions will follow. I want you to think about that in this coming week. What is it that, that really your heart longs for? And what we need to maybe pull out of first place and put God in instead? And what would your life look differently? If those around you, your, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, could just see there's something different in you, that there's a love inside you that burns strong. And we have that love, not because of who you are or your great prayer life or the amount of time you spend in God's word, but because the spirit of God is in you. He has transformed your heart to love his. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would perform surgery of heart transplants throughout this room today, that you would uproot and pull out anything that is not you. Help us know you, your great love, your great sacrifice, your life given for ours, and stir in us a powerful love, God.
Stir in us your love. Let the world outside of us see the love that we have for you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and holy name. Amen. Now, throughout this week, and you can even start today at lunch, I'd like for you to digest this question. This is your weekly awakening for this week. Please write this down. Your weekly awakening question or thought is what competes for first place in your heart and why? What competes for first place in your heart and why? So maybe lunch is a great spot for that. Maybe with your coworkers. I, I encourage you if you gather together uh, with, with friends or fellow students or coworkers during your week, ask this question. Throw these weekly questions out on the table and see what kind of conversation the Spirit creates.